You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 6th of June, 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Daniel Bage. On today's show, how successful has Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu been in trying to push Germany, France and the UK away from the Iran nuclear deal? The United States has left the deal. And I think the real question we have to confront today is what do we do about Iran's aggression? What do we do about Iran's remaining goals in its uh, pursuit of nuclear weapons. My guests Terry Siasny and Robert Fox will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including French President Emmanuel Macron's fight against fake news, the controversial policies of Italy's new ruling coalition, and in his way of undoing Obama-era policies, will Donald Trump do anything to speed up a stalled makeover of the $20 bill, meant to feature Harriet Tubman? That's all to come on Midori House with me, Daniel Bage. So welcome to Midori House. My guests today are author and journalist Terry Stiasny and Robert Fox, London's evening, the Evening Standards uh, defense editor. Welcome both to the program again. Uh, let's start today with the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who's been touring Europe to push the leaders of Germany, France and Brit- Britain away from the Iran nuclear deal. Not a big fan. As his tour stopped in London, Netanyahu has been hearing concern about the deaths of protesters in Gaza at the hands of Israeli forces. And today, followed over the deaths, has seen Argentina call off a friendly match against the Israeli national team, which was scheduled to take place in Jerusalem on Saturday. Terry, perhaps we'll start with you. Uh, on my right, let's um, let's first look at uh, Netanyahu's uh, European tour. What, what is he asking for? We see these charm offensives all the time, but what, what's the point of this? Well, I think he's really trying to uh, persuade uh, the European powers to try and take a line that's a bit more similar to what we've heard from the United States over recent weeks. We've heard that the US basically wants to withdraw from the nuclear deal with Iran. And so far from what we know from uh, Netanyahu's meetings with Angela Merkel, with Macron and with Theresa May in London today is that it doesn't seem that he's having much success with that so so far. those European countries are saying, we look in the words of uh, Angela Merkel earlier in the week, saying that we share the same goal that Iran must never get a nuclear weapon. But the difference between us, she said, is is how to do that. And it, I mean, it seems a similar sort of script to what uh, Theresa May was saying today when uh, she's saying that along with France and Germany, the UK continues to believe that that's the, the best route to preventing Iran from getting a nuclear weapon. Though she sort of added a caveat later on. She said, we're committed to it as long as Iran meets his obligations meets its obligations. And what Israel and what Netanyahu is trying to persuade uh, the European powers is that uh, Iran is not meeting its obligations. And he would argue that Israel has a load of data that suggests that uh, Iran is not complying with what it is supposed to be doing. And they want uh, the IEA to, you know, to be more strict. And they, they're they much more concerned about what Iran might be up to. But he uh, doesn't seem to have much success as yet in kind of spinning off the rest of Europe from the, from the line that they're taking. Robert, has uh, Netanyahu had any success with st- selling that storyline on Iran? Yes. Um, in, in short, uh, there was a very odd leading story in the Times of London at the beginning of this week saying 
um, there are now indications the Israelis have material showing there is a covert uh, atomic weapons or nuclear weapons program. Um, this has been disputed so uh, comprehensively, uh, possibly I could even use the word trashed. He came out with this um, famous line, you know, with a big headline. He presented it in Israel a few weeks back. Uh, Iran lied. <laughs> and huge box files, I mean, just a stream of them, and they were mostly from 2003. And this is what is happening with Netanyahu, which happens so often in these circumstances. It seems to be all tactics and no strategy, because you say, well, what is your strategic goal? Yes, we want to stop Iranian aggression, as he said, but he actually is looking for three things, and it's all got terribly muddled. He's not only talking about Iran must not get uh, a serious nuclear weapon. Iran must stop developing missiles. Iran must stop influencing things in Syria. Iran must stop backing Hezbollah. Ah, that's where we have a problem mm -hmm. because they treat, um, it's not only Israel, but uh, Trump land does a bit, treats Hezbollah merely as a tool of Iran. Well, Hezbollah is not Iranian, it is Arab, and it is Lebanese, and it is indigenous. And here's a funny thing, it may be a militia as well, but it is also a legitimate part yeah, of the Lebanese government. Got it. And this is where it all the stitches start popping. And I think that this is why, as Terry was saying, you get this caution, caution, caution from Macron, Merkel, and, and, and May, the three M's, but they are singing off the same hymn sheet. And just to take Terry's point... They're trying to push, uh, this is the Trump-Netanyahu axis, the IAEA, but so far the IE, that's the International Atomic, Atomic Authority, has been quite clear from its inspections, and there have been quite a few over 10, they have stuck with the JCPOA, with, with, with the agreement, the agreement as, as drawn up. And what we're facing here, which is so worrying, and I mean, Mr. Netanyahu will be the last to recognize it, is total impasse between the Europeans, between the Europeans and Trump, and also they're quite suspicious of Netanyahu himself. Mm -hmm. Uh, these things are often so much about business and politics. Uh, European leaders have called on the U.S. to not slap tariffs on their business interests in Iran. Uh, Terry, does Netanyahu care about those at all? And he just wants this Iran deal gone, right? That's his main focus. Yes, I think his his main focus is on uh, on the Iran nuclear issue. Obviously, it does cause a huge problem, particularly for many European businesses, because they're worried that if the United States then slaps sanctions on anybody who is doing trade with with Iran, you know, some of them are having to do contingency planning already. Particularly, I mean, if you look at there, obviously, people who are in the oil industry, there are people who've got other forms mm. of of trade with Iran who will be very worried about you know possibly being prosecuted, being punished by the United States, or not being able to do business with the United States. So that's a there's a, a big business issue there. And that's obviously from the point of view of the European governments, one of the things that people don't want to see happen. I mean, I don't know how much that impacts directly on Israel. But I think that, you know, that's, as, we've, as Robert's just said, that's they've got so many other concerns that I think that is probably mm -hmm. a very minor one as, as far as they are concerned. I just want to bring up the, the football match I mentioned uh, off the top there in the intro. We've seen controversies with bands traveling to Israel before 
and now, uh, you know, the Argentinian soccer team says it doesn't want to go uh, play a match there. Uh, does this reflect poorly on Israel at all? Does it matter? It is very worrying for Israelis mm-hmm. because the fact that it's Argentina, because Argentina has a, a very important Jewish, many of them Zionist, uh, elite, recognized, uh, much looked after, victims of, of terrorist attacks, famous uh, uh, terrorist attack in Buenos Aires on, the, uh, on a synagogue way back. Mm-hmm. The symbolism is enormous uh, for this, and that this will really hurt Israelis. There is real hurt pride about this, and it's a way that perhaps in Northern Europe we don't get so clearly. It really does matter, uh, this one, because Argentina has this particular position in you know the support of the Friends of Israel. Israel, the Diaz, the number of Israeli backpackers after they've done their military service, they may be going on to university, but they generally go to South America and particularly to Argentina, Peru, and 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 Chile, and this will really matter and 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 will we, we, we'll, um, really register. But again. As with so much in Israel, it's, it's, it's the liberal centre, the old secular tendency of the old Labour Party. For, for long, uh, uh, the regime in the initial years after independence, mm-hmm. that voice is not being heard over much at the moment. Let's continue now uh, to France, where President Emmanuel Macron's bill to fight fake news and misinformation will be presented in Parliament tomorrow. The bill would seek to protect elections from the influence of fabricated rumors, whether by extremist groups or so-called alternative media, like Russia Today, perhaps. Uh, the proposed law has already been criticized as a threat to free speech. Uh, with the amount of users who get their views from social media, isn't it impossible task is it impossible of a task to combat fake news, Terry? Um, it's it's a very difficult thing to do. I think what's kind of interesting in this context is how much France already does place restrictions mm-hmm. on what you can report and when. I mean, you've got to contrast it with the American system where it's sort of publish and be damned. You've got free speech rights that trump everything. Uh, trump everything. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> In France, it's always been restricted to a certain extent. French privacy laws have always been very restrictive. Up until quite recently, you didn't hear anything about, you know, whether it was presidents who had affairs, whether it was, you know, it could extend to corruption scandals as well, because they say you have this right not to have your your private business put in the public domain. Um, and so there, is, there are restrictions on, say, what you can report in the run-up to an election. Uh, for instance, in the last week of a French election campaign, you're not allowed to report what the opinion polls say mm-hmm. because you're supposed to give everybody a week's kind of peace and quiet to sort of think about it before they go and cast their vote and you're not allowed to report last-minute sort of shifts and last-minute statements just before the polls open. So, so, you know, there's already that and that's what Macron, I suppose, is, is trying to do is try to extend that period, if you like, and say that uh, there is a restriction on what you can report in the run-up to an election. I think what's kind of worrying about this is some of the proposals that he's come up with. He wants to have things like uh, a state-run fact-checking website. I mean, fact-checking websites are great, but they shouldn't be run by the government. And the idea that you have a banner on your internet site when something is promoted, (laughs) saying that this is fake news or this is promoted by, by a certain agenda... I just don't think that's going to work. They are trying to up, update a, a sort of a 19th century French law that's right. been there since 1881, you know, that's allowed, you know, all sorts of, you know, it's, it gave free, freedom of speech a basis in law in France. Uh, but I think they haven't really got there yet in terms of trying to deal with the modern world and, and fake news. 
Robert, despite the, the intentions of, of, of governments, uh, some who have been hit by misinformation campaigns like Macron uh, himself, uh, when companies like Facebook are giving up user data to corporations and governments, can we believe they're going to work with legislators to, to, to fight misinformation themselves? They will come out with a lot of pious statements, mm -hmm. and they're all on the side of uh, truth and honesty and uh, applehood and mother pie. You know, it, it really is like that. But it, 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 the, the genie is out of the bottle uh, and every other cliche like that. One of the commentators on the new um, proposed legislation by Macron had an absolutely wonderful summary. She said... He's fight she, Macron. He Macron is fighting tomorrow's disinformation with yesterday's tools, mm -hmm. and she fingered the point is that actually poor old judges. I don't feel much sympathy for the the, the legal uh, uh, legal profession generally. Well rewarded though they are, but both in the UK and in France, they're being asked to do far too much with regard to media, with little understanding by the people who are promoting the legislation, mm. which are empowering them, of what is really going on. It is so fluid, this world of trade and trafficking. And I'm um, um, taking Terry's point that, you know, in Italy, too, they banned opinion polls through much of election campaigns. Absolute, absolute failure. Um, and if you think of the modern version of the satirical magazines, the, you know, which are now uh, legion on social media, the equivalent of Le Canon en Chene and Private Eye, they, you know, that it, 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 once judiciary and governments get involved in this, mm -hmm. they become figures and focuses of ridicule. And th this is the thing that makes it so very, very difficult indeed. And truth is, it, 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 the, the real problem is the tradability of truth now, which has been emphasized by the way uh, Trump uses media and uses the accusation uh, of fake news. Um, it's, it, 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 it breaks down consensus, which is a feature of social media. Social media is partisan. It is there to divide. Mm -hmm. It is not a community that is based on consensus. Yeah, interesting. You bring up two sort of different yeah. definitions of fake news. Yeah. There, the one that Trump likes to and his friends on Fox perhaps like to like to spread. Terry, does this just underline the value of good reporting and good journalism? Uh, yes, um, it's as <laughs> simple as that. Um, it's interesting because, as you say, Macron had sort of personal experience of this in the run-up mm -hmm. to the election. I mean, he's he's kind of accused Russia Today, for instance, and Sputnik. He's called them agencies of influence and lying propaganda. And he's been attacking uh, propaganda on that level. He also had very people criticising him personally, coming up with stories about allegations about his private life that went round France sort of like wildfire with allegations about, uh, you know, financial wrongdoing that were never had any basis in fact yeah what you need to do is just actually try and have some good reporting try and find out what is going on i mean mm -hmm. people shouldn't be allowed to to cover up particularly anything like financial wrongdoing but yeah good reporting good discussion a bit more openness it does seem to me to be the, the best way to combat it would it be easier then to just ban politicians from spreading untruths? Is that an, an as impossible a task? <laughs> you could use that, but I, I, if you mind, don't mind, Daniel, I'd like to take on from what, 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 what Terry's just said. Sure. It, it is it's very, very acute point 
because when social media came in, and, and she and I were, were, were colleagues, broadcast print world, I was doing Bosnia, I was doing then Afghanistan, Iraq, um, and the the noughties, uh, you know, the 90s and the, and the noughties. And as the internet came online and you, and you, you had the citizen blogger, everybody said it's all over for you guys. Right. You know, that these things. Actually, it's going the other way now because you see the value of really good reporting of somebody who really tries to um, establish a true account of what's going on, the veracity uh, uh, of the subject, the thing that lies at the heart of it. I, I shouldn't do this. I'm really speaking out of turn on behalf of a <laughs> co competitor, but the BBC is about to do its great wreath lectures with a marvellous lecturer, mm -hmm. uh, Margaret McMillan. I, I've heard her first lecture. And what I'm going to trail is that the truth in war and peace is a key part of, of her argument. And she is a very fine historian, very, very experienced, Lloyd George's great-granddaughter. But she said that one of the most serious things for civil society today is to understand a point you have raised about Trump mm -hmm. is what is truth and do we value truth? Mm -hmm. Because Trump seems to admit daily now that he lied. He lied in his own cause. You know, whether it's dictating memos to his uh, health reports to his doctor or to his son or whatever, as if it doesn't matter. And Margaret was just emphasising, yes, it does matter. It is one of the crucial questions, not only of any age, but very, very strongly in the form that it's coming up with us. And it's coming up in the fake news argument very, very powerfully. I mean, one quick last point on yeah. France. I, mean, I think the danger is having laws that are too restrictive because fr in French political gossip always knows these things. For instance, I remember French friends when the allegations came out about Dominique Strauss-Kahn and mm -hmm. his private life. A lot of those weren't published in the French media, but French friends said... Of course, everybody knew that. You just had to be in the right circles. Right. What's different now is social media allows everybody who's not in the right circles to know the, the rumours and the gossip that everybody who's in the know had already heard. And perhaps uh, they're not as much picking up the newspaper or, or turning on the TV at night to see to see the news. Uh, fascinating conversation. Uh, you are listening to Midori House here with me, Daniel Bates, Terry Siasny and Robert Fox. Coming up next, what to expect from Italy's new ruling coalition and whose face should be on the new $20 bill in the U.S. We are back just after this. Climb aboard Monocle's June issue, where we take a ride through the latest in planes, trains and automobiles, drivers included, in our annual transport survey. But first we set sail in Spain's medical ship, with its crew of doctors and nurses looking to help anyone waylaid by choppy seas. From there we hit a cruising altitude of 30,000 feet, until we touch down in Toowoomba, where one Aussie family is transforming the town with an international airport. Then it's on to the tour bus to see what life is like on the road with the band. Surprisingly homely if you're on a night train coach, followed by a quick stop to meet the journos on the front line of Brexit. Now it's time to get high with a whistle-stop tour of the new elevated parks, popping up in London, Copenhagen and São Paulo, inspired, of course, by New York's Highline. Then we pop corks at Verona's Vinitaly, head to the hills for a spot of camping with mountain wear brand Amundsen Sports and its handsome team, and drop in at Marseille's oldest hardware shop, Maison Empereur, to stock up on, well, pretty much anything and everything we need. Monocle's June issue is out now. Get your copy today or subscribe at monocle.com.
Welcome back around the table. You are listening to Midori House with me, Daniel Bates. Still with me, Terry Stiasny and Robert Fox. In Italy now, the new ruling coalition has just won a crucial trust vote in the upper chamber of parliament. The alliance of the anti-establishment five-star movement and right-wing Liga party will now seek support in the lower house where they have a majority. The new government has already announced some controversial policies calling for re-engagement with Russia and lifting of sanctions there and breaking ranks with the allies in its allies in Western Europe. Prime Minister Giuseppe Conte is also taking a hard line on migration, saying that Italy will no longer be Europe's refugee camp. Strong words there. Uh, Terry, re-engagement with Russia, that's not going to go down well with Brussels, is it? Uh, No, I don't think it is. Um, (laughs) But it's quite interesting, yes. Calling for a review of sanctions against Russia is uh, yeah, another worrying development in Italy. It's very interesting that the new prime minister is setting this out, you know, in his opening speech that, mm-hmm. you know, that this is something that they see as important enough to say it, you know, on your first day in office, that that's you know, the way that they're looking. Uh, I think one of the other things that we'll probably come on to in a moment is also very concerning, as you say, about uh, the issues about migration and the what I think it particularly within the European context, is interesting, is the kinds of alliances that this new government is is trying to uh, is trying to forge. And particularly in relation to Russia, we've got had Putin visiting Austria today and we've had the the head of the Liga, who's now in, in charge of the Interior Ministry, suggesting that uh, he's been in direct contact already with uh, the Prime Minister of Hungary, Viktor Orban, to discuss their kind of what they, their shared worries about migration. And so it seems to be a kind of a, a move, a shift to the east slightly, if you like, um, and a shift to looking towards looking towards Russia, looking eastwards, um, and generally becoming, I suppose, more illiberal. And you know the kind of rhetoric uh, that we're hearing and the kind of uh, sort of alliances that we can see forming. That will mm-hmm. be very interesting to see how that that plays out as the Central European and Eastern European countries uh, discuss these kind of issues with Brussels. Robert, why would a, this coalition government uh, float the idea of getting rid of sanctions? What's that going to do to help Italy? Oh, it's vital. Gas, in a word. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so dependent on Russia for energy. Uh, with the new uh, delivery uh, routes coming on coming on stream, uh, there's always been a close synergy. Um, obviously, there the, the, the was with the old PCI, the old Italian Communist Party, which always engendered uh, suspicion. But the trouble is that people realise in corrupt old Italy that some of the cleanest local governments where well, they were famous for it were the communist government. So mm-hmm. there's a legacy. And where I think there's something going wrong, by the way, with the northern approach to reporting the Italian story. It's the bankocracy mm-hmm. that's, uh, uh, that's ruling. Yes, the bankers are right to be worried, and perhaps we can d- discuss that later. But then to go on, and there was a tremendous own goal caused by one of the biggest representatives of the banking class, namely Mr. Juncker, in saying, oh, we're not going to bail out Italy. They've got to get back to work. They've got to stop being, uh, he said, they were corrupt, lazy, and have too much welfare. They've got to sort themselves out. A more politically, I won't get say stupid or crass, but inept remark, you cannot possibly have, mm-hmm. have wanted... The other thing which shows Juncker's mentality is that this isn't going going away. The reason why Sergio Mattarella, the uh, president, didn't call for new elections is that this lot, the Liga, they're not abnormal now. They're the new normal. And the five star would have come roaring back with a bigger majority. Mm -hmm. They're going to be in there for at uh, at least two or three years. 
They are calling into question, particularly the Macron, the great new visionary of the ever more convergent Europe. Actually, it's not Brexit that's really undermining that, which it is to an, to an extent mm-hmm. so much as what is going on in, 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 in Italy and Spain. Uh, the Italians are desperate to help things like youth unemployment, but they've come up with a big program which looks like 100 billion euro with a country that's so indebted, it is very, very, very difficult. And if I can just conclude quickly, where there has been really sensible and accurate reporting is there is still a great worry about uh, the banking sector, Mm -hmm. particularly the middle-level banks, where you get to this imbalance where the shareholder value becomes lower than the debts, the potential loans to be repaid of the banks. And we're not out of the woods indeed. But uh, the other thing that is very important to go on from what Terry was saying, uh, Giuseppe Conte and uh, uh, Salvini, the new interior minister, have said no, no, no to the Dublin Protocol. And Italy has really served notice. We're not going to go for this. We want Europe to help us with with, with migration. And toughest of all about that looks like being the Germans. And so uh, I, I think I think it's not it's quite a big cat, but it's been coming among the European pigeons sure. for a long time. Terry, would you agree with some of the points there? Is is this a, a strong enough government uh, that they can take on uh, Europe? Europe? Uh, I think if they can, you know, say form partnerships with other countries, and everything in Brussels basically works on how many people you can get to line up alongside yeah. you in the group of you know twenty seven or however many we are now. If you have countries like Hungary, like Slovenia, for instance, where people are saying, we don't think, for instance, the asylum migration policy is working. We are dealing with the effects of what's happening in Africa. And you know, we may not like their rhetoric. They're, some of the things that they're saying about you know, Tunisia exporting convicts, for instance, are horrible. Some of the ways they are dealing with it are horrible. But the fact is that they are on the front line there. And other countries in the north, which are not getting the problem to the same extent, need to try and find ways of working together without using kind of stereotypical rhetoric of stop being lazy, go back to work. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, that's not going to solve the problem. We've got to try and get, have a way to discuss this and to, to, to share the burden as well. Very well said. Uh, I want to just move on to our, our last topic, make sure we have enough time here. Uh, much of Donald Trump's first 500 days in office has seemingly been focused on undoing the work of Barack Obama, Iran, uh, Cuba. Others come to mind in the political tradition of axing things simply because they were spearheaded by the leader of another party. But uh, there are also the Oval Office priorities, which have sort of slipped down the list under Trump's watch. One of those uh, putting Harriet Tubman on the new $20 bill, the Jackson, as it were, uh, yesterday. Today, the Treasury Department praised Tubman, a former slave and abolitionist who is a civil rights hero, but responding to an inquiry from a Democratic senator on when the design would actually be rolled out, they said very little. Uh, what does this sound like to you? Is this something uh, Trump is likely to, to pick up, Robert? Oh, I think so. He's bound to tweet and then he'll hmm. contradict himself within, within six hours. But I think this is fun. Stamps, coins... And banknotes, mm-hmm. they they are banana skins. Sorry, to <laughs> still mix the so benefit. political. Yeah, yes, I mean, they? sorry, can I just sort of go? To, it's slightly the ridiculous and the sublime, which you get with with, with Harrington, but, but equally you get it in the UK. Mm-hmm. They were desperate on the ten pound note to put a woman on because it's the it's a hundred years since women were granted the vote. Think of that. I mean, gosh, it, it was so late. And so, one of the greatest women authors of all time, uh, Jane Austen. 
And there's an almighty row about mm. what kind of Jane mm. Austen you put. Oh, it's not flattering. Oh, it's too flattering. And, mm. and so on. But and also, you, you, the you... woman who proposed this, and, you know, a fairly uncontroversial suggestion, was heaped with abuse Did... online and yeah. people got so up, upset about it. And, you know, really, really nasty personalised abuse. And you, know, you can see the same thing might be likely to happen in the United States, you know, particularly when you've got uh, Andrew Jackson, who's one of Trump's favourite presidents. You know, he was a populist. He was the yeah. man who hated the US Senate. Bank. He was the man who had a big block of cheese in the White House, as we all know from the West Wing. You know, the idea that you know Andrew Jackson is slightly downgraded in favour of the woman who helped run the Underground Railroad mm-hmm. is, is, will probably rile up the same kind of people who were angry about Jane Austen on a ten-pound note. I should just say, perhaps, uh, just to interject, that Canada, uh, my home country, was successful in putting Viola Desmond uh, on the front of the the ten-dollar note and, and moving Sir John A. Macdonald to the back, which is what they wanted to do in the U.S. Put Jackson on the back, and and uh, who Donald Trump has praised, he has deep admiration for. Uh, he was a rich, uh, populist slave owner. Um, so who knows if that this will ever actually happen? But he did spend a lot of time and effort to pardon uh, boxer Jack Johnson, uh, which Obama sort of shied away from, as I mentioned earlier. So will he take this up? Oh, I think he's bound to. If, yeah. if, if there's enough. Uh, uh, Twitter storm, but this yeah. does make me sentimental. Daniel, can I completely go off on one? I Briefly, miss the sure. Dra- yeah. I miss the Drachma notes yeah. because they had yeah. Damaskinos, Ypsilanti, and they were great statesmen, but they were fabulous bandits yeah. too. <laughs> Terry, just briefly, um, does the US have the worst money on the planet? No Braille, <laughs> no different sizes or colours. No different colours. No yeah, different they, colours. They have got so, Alexander Hamilton. Though, right, so, you okay, know, yeah. Yeah. Fair <laughs> enough, yeah. Terrible for, bl- for blind people or yeah. anyone with and poor eyesight. Yeah, yeah, people yeah. people on banknotes are generally more interesting than buildings. It's yeah. going to be so, even if they're controversial. They've gone in for slimy notes too, like yeah, the Brits. These are awful sure. slimy J- notes. Jane Austen was not the first woman, though. A lot of people think she was, but Elizabeth Fry, I think, of had course. been on the banknote before. Oh, she so sneaked we, in. We beat, we beat Great them woman. to having one of the yeah. first women on the on the banknotes. <laughs> well, we've come on to an interesting topic, but uh, that has to be it for the end of uh, today's show. Terry Siasny and Robert Fox, thank you so much for the lively debate here at Midori House. Uh, today's show produced by Marcus Hippie, research by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Lamichi Akamato, our studio manager, Kenya Scarlett. A very talented group of people with a great uh, list of names there. Uh, more music next. Then at 1900 Hours, it is The Entrepreneurs, and we'll have more on the, May- the day's main stories on the Monocle Daily with Andrew Muller at 2200 Hours. Midori House back at the same time tomorrow with me. That's 1800 London time. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>